Hey guys, welcome back to the Toxic Mom Podcast. This is episode eight. Can you believe this is the last episode of season three and the last one of 2021? Thank you guys so much for listening and always being supportive. I know my stories aren't the easiest to listen to because a lot of them deal with missing and murdered children. And it's very hard at times to be able to digest everything that's going on with a lot of these stories. Um, So thank you so much. I look forward to this starting season four sometime in early 2022. And I'm going to try to keep the same trend and releasing them on Mondays. This episode is an update episode. I wanted to try this instead of bombarding you guys all at once as each of these trials were going on. Some of them were happening at the same time and it was too much information from all of them to kind of sit down and do one podcast at a time. So I decided to just watch the trials and write down my thoughts and what I took away from it and what is going on with the cases as we wait sentencing on some of them. And one of them's actually hasn't made it to trial yet, but it's has a date. Doesn't really mean anything because it had a date before. But um, so we'll talk about that. And um, that's pretty much it. This is not anything new I'm reporting on. These are cases that have already been in the news and continue to be in the news and will not go away until things are settled. So the first case I'm going to talk about is Lori and Chad Daybell. They're the married couple from Idaho that are both sitting in jail awaiting trial for a plethora of murder that they both are being charged with. Chad Daybell's trial was supposed to start in November of this year. However, it was postponed because him and his team wanted to change the venue. So when they do that, everything is then Um, put on hold, and he was granted a change of venue. They wanted to take place um, in another county out there in Idaho due to all the publicity, and so that was granted. I'm not sure if you guys know that this is now a death penalty case for the two of them. Um, They're being charged with the murder of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow, which are both the children of Lori Vallow, She got an additional charge from Arizona, conspiracy to commit murder against her husband, Charles Vallow. And she did that alongside her brother, they believe. They were able to dissect the text messages between the two of them and conclude that this was not an act of self-defense. If you remember, Charles Vallow was shot and killed by Lori's brother, Alex Cox, in 2019 when he went to go retrieve JJ to pick him up from school. And he claims... um, Charles got in there and started arguing with him and he had no choice but to shoot him. And Lori was not present. However, she came back and was completely unfazed by the event. So they are adding that charge for her. Uh, She would have to be um, taken to Arizona for that case to happen. And who knows if that's going to happen. And they are also both charged with um, the murder of Chad's wife, Tammy Daybell. His children did an interview with um, 
I believe it was Dateline, and they said they were told by the detectives in the coroner's office that their mom died from asphyxia, and they don't believe that their dad um, had anything to do with her death, nor do they believe he had anything to do with the death of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Uh, Vallow. So I sense that they will be taking the stand in their father's defense, and he has not made a statement, nor has Lori, about these events. I'm wondering if they got married, so they couldn't testify against each other. However, I sort of suspect that his defense is going to pin this all on Alex Cox and Lori Vallow. She is incompetent to stand trial uh, still, so we don't know if she's going to be tried with her husband. We do have a trial date set for January of 2023. Yeah, that's correct. Or excuse me. Uh, yes, January 9th, 2023 is when Chad's trial is going to start. So um, a year from now, a little over a year, and the judge wants them to be tried together. But again, that's all contingent upon the uh, psychiatrist that is treating Lori, and will she be uh, competent to stand trial by then? And the last thing with this case is there's been another grand jury that has been indicted, but or excuse me, formed. But we don't know why. Are they adding more charges? Are they thinking there's someone else involved? You never know with this case. It's like it's the never-ending case, and will we ever get to trial? Who knows? But another grand jury has been formed out there in Idaho, and as of uh, this early this week, Lori's lawyer was uh, disqualified from trying her case. So she has to find another team of attorneys who are going to take her case on. Uh, it seems that he was disqualified because this is a death penalty case and he has never tried one. Along with some other stuff going on, the state was trying to get him removed many, many months ago because they just felt like he was just doing things that were not benefiting Lori at all. And he was meddling a little too much in what was going on. And as we know, there was delay after delay after delay on her end. And then she was deemed mentally incompetent. So... He has been removed and Lori is still in a mental facility getting restorative therapy. So I can't imagine that's going to affect her mental health um, once she was given that news. So again, his trial starts January 9, 2023, and we will see what that new grand jury is going to do. And I'll update you guys as always on that. Okay, so let's get into Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse um, it's an 18-year-old uh, man who was charged with two counts of first-degree homicide and attempted murder along with some other gun charges. He was um, out there in Wisconsin last year after the shooting of Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake is an African-American man who was shot multiple times by a police officer when he was attempting to get back in his car, they were trying to arrest him for, I believe, a domestic dispute. And the police officer shot him and rendered him paralyzed. That police officer uh, will not be facing any charges. They were out there protesting last summer in regards to that. And Kyle Rittenhouse decided to come down 
with a shotgun to protect the properties that were allegedly being vandalized. He contacted a friend of his who was older than him to get him a gun because at the time he was 17 and he was not able to carry. And he met him and he got the gun from him. And Kyle said he was acting as a medic because he was trained and he was acting as like a guard. He wanted to protect the vigilantes that he was told were out there vandalizing this property and things turned south quite quickly. Um, he was approached by a group of people who thought he was there to cause damage. And um, he ended up shooting and killing two men and he shot one, uh, but he survived. His name is Gage Grosskreutz. So his trial started and um, it was a predominantly white jury that um, were listening to testimony in his case. His defense team said this was completely self-defense. Those three men tried to attack and uh, kill Kyle Rittenhouse, and he had no uh, choice but to fire his weapon at them. And the state said, no, this was a kid that was armed out there ready to kill. And um, about a month of testimony from people that were there, including Gage Grosskreutz, who was shot and wounded uh, by Kyle Rittenhouse and survived. And there was also uh, Kyle Rittenhouse himself who took the stand in his own defense and got up there and said that this was because they were attacking me and I felt scared and I had no choice but to shoot. We know after he shot them, he did not uh, surrender to police. He did not tell the police what he did. He took off and went home. And once the police were able to get a hold of the video footage and figure out what was going on, they did put a warrant out for his arrest. And he did turn himself in. However, he did not say anything. He did not give a statement to the police. His mother was present with him, would not let her son talk. And that brings me back to a conversation many years ago that happened in a class. I was in government and politics. I believe I was in 11th grade. And that teacher said, if you are ever in a situation with the police and you get arrested, give no statements. Use your Fifth Amendment rights. And that's what Kyle Rittenhouse did. That teacher said, give nothing because they can and will use that against you, even if you are innocent, to try to make you look like you're guilty. That was his opinions of the police, not mine. But Kyle Rittenhouse's mother did a great thing for her son. He said nothing. So there was nothing they could use against him once they got to court. And the self-defense clearly worked because the jury acquitted him of every single charge that was brought against him. People were quite upset after this verdict because of the shenanigans in particular of the judge. He seemed that he was very pro-defense from the moment the case got to him. He appeared to do everything he could to make sure Kyle Rittenhouse um, got off. He blocked the state from doing many things. He admonished the state brutally on camera during testimony. So it was a lot going on and people were clearly upset about this. Obviously the families of the victims were very upset. The judge did not want them to be called victims at all during this case, which was really, really weird. Um, so that's where we are. 
I knew very early on Kyle Rittenhouse was going to get a full acquittal after listening to his defense team's opening uh, statements. And also the person I think that really did damage on the stand was the surviving victim, Gage Grosskreutz. He uh, had iffy statements. Some statements he said to the police didn't match what he said on the stand. And his defense team was able to impeach him multiple times during cross-examination. So I didn't find him credible, unfortunately. And when your star witness uh, is not credible, can't imagine the jury was thinking that, yeah, we believe this guy and we believe Kyle was just out there to kill. Um, it didn't work. And he does face civil lawsuits uh, just because he was found innocent in state court does not believe does that mean he's going to be found innocent and in civil litigations they're filing wrongful death lawsuits against him the families of the deceased and i believe gage grosskreutz is filing um, a lawsuit against him so that remains to be seen he's out there right now getting paid for all these speaking engagements um, from his quote-unquote fans and we'll see what happens to Kyle Rittenhouse um, as things go on and things start to kind of dry out. Just because you're found, um, you know, innocent in state doesn't mean you'll be found innocent in civil. Because look what happened to O.J. Simpson. So that remains to be seen. Okay, so the next case I watched was the trial of Gregory and Travis McMichael and William Roddy Bryan. Gregory and Travis are father and son, Greg being the father. William Roddy Bryan was their neighbor who is the one that shot the video of Ahmaud Arbery being killed in cold blood by Travis McMichael's shotgun. This all started late 2019 when a homeowner that lived on the same block as the McMichaels was having uh, renovations done and people became very attracted to this piece of property. Uh, they were going inside of it, looking around, just, you know, being nosy and seeing what was going on. And Ahmad Aubrey was part of that group that was seen on camera going in. There was a couple there that had a date, kids. Nobody was seen taking anything out. However, the homeowner did place uh, cameras in there because he said things started going missing, but he was under the impression that it was done by his contractors. So on the morning or the afternoon of February 23rd, 2020, Ahmad is jogging in that area again, and this time he jogs past Gregory McMichael, who was outside working on his boat. Gregory sees Ahmad, runs in the house, um, arms himself with a handgun, gets his son, Travis, and says, this is the guy that, you know, we saw on camera. He's hauling ass down the street. Um and let's go see what he's up to. So they get their weapons and they jump in their F-150 and they fly down the road after Ahmad. And as they're doing this, William Roddy Bryan, their neighbor who is around the corner, it appears from their house, sees this happening and he decides to go follow to see what's going on. He pulls out his cell phone and he catches the kerfuffle between um, the McMichaels and Ahmad. Ahmad is seen trying to run away from their truck on several instances, ends up in the back of the truck, then back in front of the truck. You see Ahmad trying to get the gun that Travis McMichael is holding away from him and Travis shoots Ahmad several times and he drops 
and he dies on the scene. When the police arrive, there is no first aid rendered to Ahmad because the police officer claims that he felt the scene was unsafe and that he was alone. So it wasn't until another group of officers came, one officer does go over and assesses vital signs on Ahmad, paramedics do arrive, and he is pronounced dead on the scene. Uh, the police officers then start getting statements from the McMichaels and they go over and chat with William Roddy Bryan, who then admits that he was more than a witness. He used his truck to sort of block Ahmad in because he knew that Ahmad was more than likely up to no good. And he also admits that he did film the entire event. Travis and Greg McMichael speak to the cops and Greg McMichael lets it be known that he is a retired law enforcement official. And that's when you see the police officers sort of relax themselves. So they kind of were comfortable around these two now that they knew one of them was their own. Travis says that Ahmad was trying to grab his gun and he had no choice but to fire. You can see blood from Ahmad's body on um, the hands and shirt um, of both the McMichaels. Um, so that's the story of that. Uh, this happened in February. There were no arrests made until May because the initial report that Ahmad's mother got was that her son was involved in vandalism and a property owner shot and killed him because he was out there stealing and she did not believe this. This was completely out of character for her son. So she goes on a, um, she puts on her detective's hat and she really starts digging uh, to try to find information as to what really happened to her son. And as expected, she was met with many, many roadblocks and it didn't stop her because she finally came across the right people that were going to listen to her story. And then she finds out that there is a video the video is then released by William Roddy Bryan's attorney uh, because the three of them thought it would vindicate them and show that it was self-defense. However, we know that it was not self-defense because Ahmad was unarmed with nothing. He was he didn't even have a cell phone on him. So they finally do arrest these three individuals. The McMichaels were arrested first in early May. William Roddy Bryan wasn't arrested until the end of May. But by Memorial Day of um, 2020, they were all in custody. They were denied bail and they sat in jail until their trial started in October of this year. And the state said that this was a case based on assumptions. The defense for the McMichaels was that it was self-defense. And then for William Roddy Bryan, his attorney pretty much was trying to disconnect his client from the whole situation and said that he was just an innocent bystander that happened to capture a vicious um, crime on his phone. However, did William Roddy Bryan forget that he gave an interview on several occasions to the police that he helped the McMichaels by using his truck to barricade Ahmad in so he couldn't run off. So he was a little bit more than an innocent bystander filming the video. He also went on CNN and other networks and gave interviews 
claiming he was getting death threats over this and that he was innocent and the video would vindicate him. But it didn't work because he was arrested, you know, not long after he went on these interview sprees. All right. So there was a plethora of police officers that were uh, there taking the stand, recounting what the McMichaels and William Roddy Bryan told them. They talked to them about the events that led them to why they decided to chase um, Ahmad Aubrey down. The neighbor that owned the house took the stand and he was adamant that he never saw Ahmad steal anything and he was under the impression that there, the theft was being done by his contractors. And that information actually was relayed to the McMichaels prior to the shooting even happening. So the McMichaels knew that the homeowner did not suspect that this young black man was up to no good in his property. Um, so yeah, that's that. So Mc, Travis McMichael ended up taking a stand in his own defense, which I was not expecting at all. That came out of left field and he, you know, got up there and said that he had no choice but to shoot him because he thought once Ahmad was going to get his gun, he was going to then retaliate and shoot him dead. And all he could think about was his son and he had no choice. And he kept saying that over and over and over again, that he had no choice. They threw in the word citizen's arrest when he got up there on the stand. However, it was brought out on cross-examination that citizen's arrest didn't even come about until they met with counsel because they never even told the detectives early on in the investigation that they were attempting to make a citizen's arrest. So that's something that I'm pretty sure their lawyers came up with to try to alleviate what really happened here. Um, he was the only of the three defendants that took the stand. Gregory McMichael did not. And of course, William Roddy Bryan did not. I think if William Roddy Bryan would have got on that stand, he would have been obliterated more than Travis McMichael was because he was more than likely going to go up there to try to say that he was an innocent bystander. But we know that his police interviews would have been played. Here's another classic example of why you should not say anything to the cops, because obviously if William Roddy Bryan hadn't spoke, he more than likely would be home right now, still uh, enjoying life as it is. But we are glad that he spoke out because we got to see what really happened here and his uh, role in it, which is why he was charged with the exact same thing as the McMichaels. You know, you have this young black man running in this neighborhood and all of a sudden he's being chased by two white men with a Confederate flag on the front of their truck, wailing guns and cursing at him. And Travis said he just wanted to talk to him to see what was going on. And they really expected Ahmad to be okay with that. And then in the back, you have this other man who's trying to maneuver his truck so he can't get free. It just was really, really bad. And the jury agreed and they convicted all three of felony murder and Travis got convicted of the highest charge of malice murder, which carries a life in prison uh, sentence without the possibility of parole. Um, some other goofy stuff that happened during the trial was with William Roddy Bryan's attorney, Kevin Goff, who got up on several occasions and made very racist statements 
to try to get mistrials because he was not happy that there was high profile members of the African-American community coming in. Jesse Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson was there a couple of times with the family. Reverend Al Sharpton was there and he was not happy. He said that this was going to persuade the jury to vote uh, in favor of a conviction for his client. Excuse me. So he also said at one point that this trial was the result of the woke left mob and that this was a public lynching towards his client and the judge was not buying his nonsense. And that's pretty much what he said without saying it, that every mistrial request was a load of crap. Um, He did not say this in front of the jury, but I'm pretty sure the jurors after they were able to sit down and finally look at stuff they weren't able to see, has seen it. And I would love to hear, you know, their thoughts on that in particular. And obviously, you know, other things that led them to the convictions. Um, The only person that might get parole as a possibility is William Roddy Bryan. But you never know, because this judge seems, you know, by the book. He denied bail to all of them. And he very well might not give them any possibility of parole. The the one who more than likely I'm 99.9% certain is Travis McMichael. So he's done. He apparently had a nervous breakdown early on after being arrested because he was under the impression and took his dad's word that they would not be charged with this. Rumor has it that he is estranged from his father. They're not speaking And you can tell he was stressed out. I mean, if you look at pictures of him from when this first happened, he lost a significant amount of weight and he's just not doing well, rightfully so. His father instigated the whole thing. He went along with it and he shot, you know, a mod over absolutely nothing. They tried to pull the self-defense car. It didn't work. So they're where they, you know, belong. They're also facing federal hate crimes charges in addition to this. Uh, so, you know, once the feds get a hold of you, you're kind of done. So they're they're done. And the only other thing I want to mention about this, if you watch the trial, you see the very sloppy detective work that went along with this. Very, very sloppy. You know, no aid being rendered at the scene right away. They were given water and bug spray to the defendants to try to make them comfortable. Um You know, like I said, everything went out the window for these detectives once Gregory McMichael um, announced that he was a former law official, law enforcement official. He made a phone call to his friend that he used to work with, one of the district attorneys down there. She actually got herself in hot water. She was charged with obstruction in regards to this case. There were a slew of judges and other DAs that removed themselves from this case because of conflict of interest. So a lot of stuff went on until they finally found the right people that had no connections, no conflicts of interest, no biasness or anything. And they put on a great um, uh, strategy and they were able to get all three of these um men convicted of this very egregious, heinous, unnecessary, hateful crime. They will all be sentenced on January 7th, 2022. And when that happens, you know, I will update you guys accordingly. 
So the last case we're going to talk about is the incident involving uh, former Brooklyn Center police officer Kimberly Potter. Her event took place at the exact same time that Derek Chauvin was being tried in Hennepin County, Minnesota, for the murder of George Floyd. He was ultimately convicted and sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison for that. This event with Kimberly Potter took place in April of 2021, and she was tried in the exact same courtroom in the exact same uh, courthouse as Derek Chauvin. She was involved in a traffic stop that went terribly wrong back in April. She was training an officer named Officer Lucky who wanted to pull over Dante Wright, who had air fresheners in his car, uh, not in the correct spot. Once they pulled him over, they realized he had a warrant out for his arrest and they attempt to arrest him. However, like a lot of suspects, he resisted after a few seconds and he attempts to jump back in his vehicle and he was successful in getting back into his vehicle. However, once back in his vehicle, that's when everything went wrong. Initially, it was just Kimberly Potter on the scene with Officer Lucky, and then Sergeant Johnson arrived shortly thereafter. You can see on the video, once they do get Dante out of the car and let him know he is being placed under arrest, he was a little resistant with getting out of the car. He was on the phone with his mother, and he did have a passenger um, in his car, a woman that he had uh, just started dating. They were coming back from his mom's house. He went there to retrieve money to go get gas and a car wash. So after they got him out of the car and they advised that he was being placed under arrest, Officer Lucky was able to get Dante Wright's hands behind his back. However, Dante Wright broke free, jumped back in his car. You can see on Sergeant Johnson's body camera footage that he then attempts to grab Dante Wright's arms and hands to prevent him from uh, shifting the gears, according to his testimony during Kimberly Potter's trial. You can hear uh, Kim Potter yelling, I'm going to tase She then uh, retrieves her service weapon and yells, taser, 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 followed by a pop. And Dante Wright speeds off into oncoming traffic, slamming the car into a senior citizen couple that was driving up the street. He is fatally wounded by that gunshot and went through his lungs and then pierced his heart. The passenger that he was with survived. However, she had extensive injuries, including a fractured jaw, and the senior citizens that he hit head on also uh, suffered some pretty serious injuries. Um, the wife uh, that was driving didn't suffer injuries um, physically that, you know, rendered her um, unconscious or anything, but the mental toll um, she said it took on her was pretty traumatizing. Now, the reason that Kimberly Potter was charged with first and second degree manslaughter is because you can hear her on the camera after she realizes she shot Dante Wright with her service weapon. She says that she retrieved the wrong weapon. She meant to pull out the taser and instead pulled out her handgun and shot him. She is hysterical on the camera. She's yelling that she's going to go to jail. You can hear Sergeant Johnson comforting her, saying that she's not going to jail because the driver of the car tried to take off with him inside. So she's arrested and charged uh, a few days later after this whole thing. She does resign um, after this happened, along with her uh, chief of police who refused to fire her. He resigned because of that. 
and she is being held um, in jail, but she is able to get a bond hearing and she was released on a $100,000 bond. So she was out of jail while waiting her trial. She said that she sold her house and her and her husband and family moved to another state location unknown. So her trial started um, in November of this year and lasted about a month. A typical seems to be a typical time frame here for these type of cases. It appears that she um, wanted a speedy trial because this happened rather quickly, um, and we're still in the midst of a pandemic. So it seems like she wanted a speedy trial to happen. The state was arguing that she made a, a deadly mistake that caused the life of another. None of them were saying that she did this on purpose. However, her actions led to the death of Dante Wright, and she was reckless and negligent in her actions by accidentally pulling out her gun instead of a taser. She's a 26-year veteran, so she should have known better. Her defense team pretty much stuck to this was a mistake that should not have been criminally charged, and but for Dante Wright's actions, this wouldn't have happened. So the very first witness for the state was Dante Wright's mom. The very last witness for the state was Dante Wright's father. And in between there, there were police officers, including Officer Lucky and Sergeant Johnson, who is now Major Johnson now, that testified um, about what happened and what was going on and what they recollect. Other police officers that arrived to the scene after Dante Wright crashed his car. Dante Wright's girlfriend, who was in the car with him, also testified and you heard from the senior, uh, one of the senior citizens that was involved in the accident also testified. And that went on for about a week and a half. And then the defense started their case. They had a use of force expert on there. The state also had a use of force expert as well. They had um, people coming in as character witnesses for Kimberly Potter, and then they also had Kimberly Potter testify herself. She was the last witness for the defense before the case rested and went to the jury. So I'm just going to talk about what Kimberly Potter said on the stand to keep this podcast under like a half hour, just the important parts of the case. She took the stand and on direct, she um was very upfront with things. Um, they went and talked about how long she'd been on the force, why she became a police officer. And then they got right into the events that happened um, in April. She said pretty much that um, everything was happening so fast and she would not have pulled over Dante Wright if she was alone because she felt like what he was being pulled over for was really nothing that serious. It's not something that she necessarily would have thought of. And because of COVID, she claims that they were advised to really just kind of stick to very important things, um, not air fresheners, it appears. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. It appears that she was trying to disconnect herself from the events. Um, she admitted on the stand that she needed counseling after this. She was suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. There was a psychiatrist who testified um, that he spoke with her. She also um, discussed why she left the state and um, why she initially resigned. 
And then during cross-examination, that's when her personality sort of changed. She went from calm, cool, and collected, which I expected because she is a police officer and police officers are used to being on the stand and being cross-examined because a lot of their job requires them to make arrests and they have to testify. And once that suspect gets to gets to, um, you know, to a trial if there is a trial held. So I wasn't expecting her to not be prepared. However, her personality changed and she became very defiant and defensive once that cross-examination started. She had selective amnesia. She couldn't remember um, whether or not she tested her taser out earlier that shift, even though people testified earlier on that she never tested, she never tested her taser. She couldn't remember the weight difference between the gun and the taser, which I thought was very strange. Uh, she said the reason that she decided to retrieve her gun, although she claims she meant to pull her taser, was because she saw a look of fear on Sergeant Johnson's face that she had never seen. And that's when things got a little slippery for me with her testimony. I thought all of her testimony up until that point was pretty solid and credible with the exception of some of those selective amnesia points. But now I thought that she was starting to kind of add things to try to justify, you know, why she wanted to retrieve a weapon. I don't think it would have been in dispute if she actually you know, she had every right in her training to pull out a weapon, uh, a taser, because Dante Wright was resisting and they really did not want him to drive off in that car. But it seemed like there was no remorse almost on her end. She did have some crying spells. Um a lot of people were not buying her tears. I don't necessarily look at that as a big thing because it's hard to tell when someone's fake crying versus real crying. I know with Kyle Rittenhouse, people were like, eh, he's BSing, but it worked for him. So could it have worked for her? We don't know. Um, but certain things just weren't there for me. Um, her testimony was odd. And I said that on Twitter after I saw it. And I didn't really think that the defense or excuse me, the state really was asking her those hardcore questions I was expecting about that actual day. It seems they were really focused on her training and how much training she had. And she was getting annoyed with that. You could tell because she's kept saying, well, I guess if it's there, I did it, you know, just being a little bit ridiculous and trying to avoid questions that you really couldn't dispute. So I don't know what that was about. So all in all, after everything is said and done, the jury was out for a few days. People were getting antsy. And I suspected that it had a lot to do with those jury instructions once they got them from the judge. After listening to testimony for the two weeks that it took for the trial, um, once it got going after jury selection and then listening to those jury instructions, I was confused. And I said, that's going to be hard for them to try to apply to the law. And surprise, surprise, after they did render a verdict, one of the jurors did speak out and said the biggest hassle that they had were those jury instructions and applying them to the law. So she was convicted 
of both charges, and she's facing up to 15 years in jail. I was very surprised at that verdict. I was expecting a hung jury and or a full acquittal. I just didn't feel that the state proved a lot of stuff they were trying after I heard those jury instructions. Um, Everything was pretty solid to me. I wasn't expecting that first degree manslaughter at all. After closing arguments, I was at least expecting the second degree. Um, But then after I heard the instructions, I was expecting a full acquittal or a hung jury, but it wasn't. They convicted her ultimately of both. So one of the jurors did speak out. He remained anonymous, but it was one of the male jurors. This was a predominantly white jury. Um, agreed that Kim Potter made a mistake, but was still responsible for the death of Dante Wright. They felt that her testimony was genuine. They felt that she did show remorse. So they did use on the stand crying. Where it got shaky for them was when her psychiatrist testified. And when she testified about seeing that look of fear when Sergeant Johnson's face, again, I told you, I didn't buy that. And it sounds like the jury wasn't too sure that that was factual information. He was very careful uh, about calling her a liar. He didn't say that, but he said the psychiatrist didn't say it. And Kim Potter never said that to the psychiatrist. So it kind of sounds like it was something that she sort of just thought of, you know, before she was, you know, on the stand. I don't know why she decided to throw that in. Maybe she was recollecting and thought she saw his face, who knows? But that's something that the jury had issues with. Um, They also did not feel that she was a racist and they thought that it was ludicrous that people were assuming this. They felt she was a good person and a good cop, but that doesn't mean that you're above the law. So it's always nice to hear what the jury thinks. And, you know, there were two holdouts on that first uh, degree manslaughter charge, and those two holdouts privately spoke among themselves without the other jurors present to kind of work out their differences and to see if they can come to some sort of agreement. They all voted Tuesday for that second degree, and that's when they were butting heads and when they came back and asked the judge um, about what they can't reach consensus because they had had hopes I don't know what to think here. And it all came back to those jury instructions. However, it, it worked out in the end and they all came to a, you know, a unanimous decision of um, guilty. So she was um, remanded into custody. Her bail was revoked. The attorneys did argue that she is not a flight risk. She appeared at all her appearances and, you know, she should spend Christmas at home with her family. Christian, she used this as an example and she has to, you know, apply the charges to, you know, what's going on here. And she felt that this type of charges were very serious and she should not be out on bond pending sentence. So she was whisked away to a women's prison in Minnesota and her mugshot was released a few hours later. And she is smiling very happily in that mugshot. It always makes me cringe when I see someone smiling because now everything i you know, thought about her sort of is now up for speculation. I still don't believe that this was an on purpose, but after seeing that smile, what's really behind that smile? Did she really know what she was doing? Was she playing dumb? Or is is this her way to kind of get back at those people that feel like she's a racist and she should be there? We'll never know. So she's going to be sentenced uh, towards the latter part of February. So 
They're looking to her to serve longer. It's probably going to be into, which is 15 years. They said, according to Minnesota guidelines, she'll probably get seven, but the state is going to try to ask for more. So that remains to be seen. And that is all we have uh, on that. And of course, I will up guys according that sentence comes about. And I just want to thank everybody for tuning in to this season and from the very first podcast I've ever done. I appreciate you guys very much. Your feedback is very important to me. And again, I know my cases are difficult to listen to, and I really um, appreciate those hardcore fans that I have that are always um, excited when I put a new podcast out, and I'm always excited to get new listeners and new followers. And you know, I read your emails and I respond back, and you can always find me on social media. So you guys have a great rest of 2020, what's left of it. And we 2022. I look forward to releasing these podcasts every Monday when I get things up and going. I'm aiming for the beginning of March. Um, same things change, but you know, I'll keep you posted. Take care. We'll check.